everyone, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Stigma. I'm Siaram Nova, your host, and in today's episode, we will be talking about the fascinating topic of how the interplay of our genes and environment impacts our mental health, known as gene-environment correlation and interaction. So gene-environment correlation essentially means how our genotype or how our genes influence our exposure to certain environments which can either be protective for us or cause risk, for example, a risk of developing a physical disease or a mental health problem. Today, we'll be discussing different types of gene-environment correlation, the current research in the field, and what this essentially means for us as humans. Our exceptionally special guest today who will educate us on this topic is Professor Thalia Ile, who is a professor of developmental behavioral genetics at the IOPPN at King's College London. Her research interest lays on the interplay between genetic and environmental factors, particularly in the development and treatment of anxiety and depression. Professor Thalia has done some impressive studies on understanding this phenomena, both through twin studies and molecular genetic studies as well. Professor Thalia, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast and episode. It's truly an honor to have you here and welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. When we talk about what impacts our mental health, at least personally for me, I always think about our environment first and foremost. And by environment, I mean the social context that we live in, because it's well studied in psychology that a lot of our mental problems are either triggered by environmental circumstances or a result of our childhood. But it wasn't until recently I started to understand or even appreciate how genetics and the interplay of the two can also be an influence on our mental health. And I guess people who study psychology don't really think about genetic influences because generally as a group, we're more interested in studying behavior and emotions. And so there's this distinction between them. So I want to start off by asking this, what do we currently know about the role of genetics in understanding common mental health problems? So what we know is that genetic factors are relevant to all common mental health problems. Um, And if you think about the proportion of variance in the whole population, so the sort of distribution of um, experience of mental health problems in the population, about 30% of that to 80% of that is down to genes. So the ones that are more heritable at the 80% range is disorders like schizophrenia and autism. And the ones at the less heritable end of the range are the sorts of things I study, like anxiety and depression. And one of the most interesting things we know about how genetics operates, particularly with regard to the common mental health problems, such as an anxiety and depression, is that they work sort of with and through the environment. So it was really interesting when you were um, saying that you'd always understood that the environment was so important for mental health conditions, and it absolutely is. But what's interesting to think about is if, for example, 10 people all experience serious trauma, Mm -hmm. do they all experience a mental health problem afterwards? And the answer is no. And the ones that do are probably more strongly genetically predisposed to experience mental health problems. So that's what we call an interaction. It's an interaction between having a background genetic vulnerability and then experiencing a trauma. So that's a gene environment interaction. And then the other way that genetics works Mm -hmm. with the environment is through what we call gene environment correlation. And that's when people's genetic uh, underlying propensities make them more likely to experience some environments. So I work a lot in anxiety um, and 
you can imagine that if a young person has a strong uh, family predisposition to anxiety, for example, social anxiety, mm. they might find it quite hard to engage in social interactions and they might choose in the playground to observe rather than join mm. in. And then they don't get the same opportunities to develop social skills that their peers get. And then that makes them you know, more likely to continue having this experience of social anxiety. And so we see these kinds of mechanisms at play in all the common mental health problems that uh, one of the ways genetic risk operates is that it influences how people engage with um, and communicate with people in, in their environment and, and how they respond to their environment as well. So, yeah. so it's kind of an interplay between them, which is what interests me the most. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like you said, we're so used to seeing or thinking of genes and environment as separate entities because it kind of roots back to the early days of philosophy, you know, with the whole nature versus nurture kind of debate. So to see them as interactive opens a new world of understanding of ourselves because we know genes impact our biology, uh, like our physical traits. So, you know, what's to say it doesn't impact our psychopathology, right? But you did mention briefly about gene environment correlation and perhaps here, maybe we can go into a little bit more detail about passive, active and evocative correlations, which I think is such a fascinating topic. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So I'll stick with anxiety as my example. So passive gene environment correlations refer to the fact that most people are brought up in a family where they are genetic related genetically related to their parents. So you inherit genes from your parents, but you're then also brought up in a household where they are making a lot of the decisions. And so there's just a passive background correlation between those genetic influences and those environmental influences. So for example, if there's a genetic predisposition to anxiety in the family, perhaps dad is highly anxious, has experienced an anxiety disorder, that might influence how he goes about running family life, how he goes about supporting his child with engaging in challenging situations, for example. Uh, and we do see that parenting is a little bit different in families with an anxious child. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, actually, the evidence suggests that perhaps in anxiety, it's evocative gene environment correlations that are most relevant. And what that means is when a child's genetic predisposition leads them to evoke specific responses from the environment. And we do see that parents of children with anxiety have different styles of parenting. They tend to be more controlling of the environment and of that mm -hmm. child's experiences. But when you look at it experimentally, and when we have looked at it in twin studies, we find that that um, greater level of parental control is influenced by the child's own genes and the same genes that influence the child's anxiety. And so how I interpret that is that, in fact, what's happening is that children are displaying anxiety and the parents are responding by trying to control the situation to constrain the environment and make it less stressful for their child. Mm. Um, and so that work has really made developmental psychologists think about the role of parenting and anxiety a bit differently, and that it might be a response to the anxiety rather than part of the cause of the anxiety in the first place. And then active gene environment correlation relates to the fact that as people get older and get more independent and able to make more decisions about how they spend their time, they tend to choose to spend their time in ways that reflect their natural predispositions. Mm. And so somebody who is, for example, highly socially anxious might choose to spend their time 
in in situations where they're not expected to engage socially with others and that might then exacerbate their anxiety it might influence the environment they have around them in such a way that there's then um, a, a correlation between the environment they're experiencing and their own genetic predisposition and and so we think of these three types of gene environment correlation almost as developmental stages. So passive is there from the start and it relates to family life. And then evocative begins very early. You can imagine a very irritable, hard to soothe infant mm. is going to get different responses from the adults around it from a smiley, giggly, cooey baby. Um, it's going to be different. So from the earliest stages of life, passive and evocative are there. But active really only comes into play when children start to develop enough of a sense of self to make choices themselves, rational choices. I'm not talking about the choice of a two-year-old, um, <laughs> rational choices are on the basis of their genetic predisposition. So that perhaps comes about from, say, middle, ad, middle childhood onwards, so say age six to eight, something like that. And it doesn't relate just to the family environment, whereas um, passive relates solely to the family environment and evocative mm. is initially the family environment, but then it can later relate to anybody. You could evoke responses from anybody in, in, in your um, in your world, within or outside of your family. And, and active can relate not just to individuals, but also to just the whole context that you feel comfortable in and place yourself in. So they sort of widen out as you go up that developmental stage. Yeah, absolutely. What I find fascinating is what you said about active gene environment correlation, that it becomes more important as children develop the ability to choose and impact their environment. So if we're quite antisocial by nature or genetically, then eventually, I guess, we'll start looking for people or groups who are similar to us. So yeah. essentially, we go after what you are, which is very interesting. Yeah, yeah that's why people with um well if you if you did a um genetic comparison mm. of people in a i don't know msc for psychology compared to people um in some completely different environment that a group of 20 somethings could be in you might find there were genetic differences for um i don't know um um in, in interest in the outside mm -hmm. world or you know likely intelligence as well um so people choose environments that suit them yeah. um, and suit what they feel comfortable with. Yeah, that's fascinating. It also makes me think about the concept or the importance of studying and understanding generational trauma. The fact that the parent and the child, like you mentioned, are related to another, then parents and children share the same DNA. So any parental risk factor could potentially be associated with offspring outcomes because the parent directly influences the child development. Um, so the work we've done on intergenerational transmission um, uses the um, children of twins design. So you can look to see the extent to which um, offspring resemble their twin parent uh, more or less um, or, or, or equally or less than or more than um, than, for example, their twin parents twin sibling um, and you would expect that when intergenerational transmission is for genetic reasons you would see that in families where um, parents are members of an identical twin pair that their offspring should be very similar to one another um, because their parents are genetically identical whereas mm -hmm. if you look at um, offspring of a non-identical twin pair then they should be those offspring should be less similar to one another 
So you can tease apart the role of genetic and environmental influences on intergenerational transmission. Um, and with regard to both depression and conduct problems, it does look like there are genetic influences passed from parents to children. With anxiety, um, the uh, field is a little bit less clear on it at the moment. And that may be because anxiety is... Um, one of the less heritable phenotypes mm -hmm. and it's also because it's so normal in young right. people and it and it varies a lot um and so we're looking to do bigger studies and uh longer term studies with more additional siblings in the families all of which sort of increase power in the design so that's that's very much a, a work in progress that field and there are there are researchers in scandinavia using their amazing interconnected um record systems of these sort of um, family connected um, record mm. systems of mental health to try and explore these issues in greater detail and that uh, that allows you to tease apart for example the role of genetics on the association between say pre and postnatal depression mm. and subsequent childhood um, outcomes so a paper from our group for example showed that prenatal depression depression during the pregnancy wasn't mm. related to child outcomes because of the fact that the mum experienced the depression at that point in time, it was related to child outcomes because of genetic predisposition that the child then inherited. Um, and so I think there's quite a lot of sort of, um, I don't know, maybe things that are perceived in the literature, like the one I mentioned earlier, that the assumption that parents of anxious children are controlling, that that's what's caused yeah. the anxiety, or the assumption that um, children of mums who had depression during pregnancy, their behaviour is different because the mum had depression during pregnancy. And, and actually, the answer in both of those cases is that, that the genetics acts almost as like a confound. Um, and, if, and in fact, both outcomes, the child behaviour and the parent uh, experience uh, of parenting or mental health problems are, are all influenced by the same genetic factors. And so they effectively are confounding those relationships. So if we want to understand um, causal directions yeah. and causal pathways with regard to any sorts of family mechanisms we have to take genetics into account yeah. and if we're not then we're doing a disservice to the current state of the field really. Yeah absolutely and I think we're coming to understand the importance of it because generally in psychology or social science studies we look at evidence that shows that our environment is correlated with psychological traits meaning that Exposure to a certain type of environment is associated with some form of negative or positive behavior. But gene environment correlation actually shows us that these associations do not necessarily mean that experiencing a particular environment actually causes the trait. So X doesn't cause Y, and that there's a third factor, or as you said, confounder, which actually explains why an environment risk factor is associated with negative outcomes, which is that correlation. Now, I know alongside correlation, gene environment correlation, there is also gene environment interaction, which you did mention a little bit in the beginning. However, I know there's a theory that goes along with that, which is the theory of differential susceptibility, which I also find super fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit more or maybe give us an example of something that would be encountered as a gene environment interaction and then what the theory of differential susceptibility is? Sure. So a gene environment interaction really relates to the idea that different people will respond to the same experience differently on the basis of their genetic background. Or you can flip it on its head and you can say um, 
people with a who 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 experience um, who have a particular genetic uh, predisposition will respond differently mm-hmm. to what they experience in, in 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 their lives. You can kind of interpret it in either direction. Um, and typically, the field has thought of this genetic uh, predisposition as a source of vulnerability. So it's been kind of in keeping with the diathesis stress model. So there's a genetic predisposition and then add in the stress and you end up with the negative outcome. So the way that the um, uh, differential susceptibility model differs from that is that the proposal is that what you inherit that is a, is a um, is a susceptibility to respond to whatever the environment throws at you, be it positive or negative. Mm -hmm. So the idea is what the genetics influences is your level of responsivity to the environment. So you might respond a lot or you might respond only a little, but the direction in which you respond relates to the direction of the positivity or negativity of the environment. So if you're a very responsive individual and you're put in a very negative context, you might do really badly, Mm -hmm. but that same very responsive individual put in a very positive context could do really well. So that's how differential susceptibility works. And the way I've been looking at it is with regard to trying to understand whether the same genes influence the development of anxiety Mm -hmm. Um, and also response to psychological approaches to treating anxiety. So obviously the kind of stressful experiences that that are involved in the journey to developing anxiety are generally negative um, and hopefully psychological treatment is generally positive but it's possible that there's genetic influences that that impact on how we respond to both of those that are the same thing Um, and we have in fact done one study that provided preliminary evidence for that Mm -hmm. um, and we're working on replicating that to see uh, how confident we can be in the the results. It is interesting that basically the interaction seemed to occur in response to both negative and positive environments rather than just negative. And it is something that resonates with me personally because I do feel how I thrive in very good environments and not really well when the environment's quite negative. But another thing that comes to my mind is uh, when I think about interventions or treatments for mental health. And obviously, you mentioned, you know, psychological therapies, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy. So these are the kind of immediate solutions that come to mind, and they're usually environmental in nature. So if interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness-based practices, RTT, all those things, if these can target and actually focus on mental health issues, then why do we still need to tackle mental health problems genetically if they seem to be more complicated than the interventions that we currently have. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a question about how do we use the genetic information? And the answer is we can't yet and we won't be able to for some time. But the way I see it is that thinking about intervention, since that was the focus of your question, Mm -hmm. it might be useful if, well, it would be useful if in time we could be a bit clearer about what type of treatment will work best for each individual. So at the moment, if you go to your GP wanting support for a common mental health problem, such as anxiety or depression, you're most likely to be offered antidepressant or anxiolytic medication. Um, You may also be offered the chance to um, try some psychological therapy through the IAP service. But even if you do, you probably won't get much choice over what type of treatment you get, you'll just be told. And we do know that not all treatments work for everybody. They all have a success rate of about 50%, but it's a different 50% for each one. So 
you know, in some groups, they'll be in the 50% that respond well to antidepressants. Other individuals will be in the 50% that respond well to CBT. Others will be in the 50% that responds well to mindfulness-based therapy and so on and so on. And at the moment, we don't really know who those people are. So it's really likely that there are consistent differences between people that respond to one type of therapy over another. But we don't yet know a huge amount about what those are. Yeah. We're beginning to understand what makes people uh, less likely than others to respond to CBT. Um, but we don't yet uh, know the sort of flip side of what would those people do better with. Mm-hmm. So that piece of work is still missing. Um, and part of what my research programme is trying to do is to see whether adding information about genetics helps our ability to get more accurate prediction mm-hmm. of what treatment will be right. So it's never going to be able to answer that question on its own. But it might be useful to look at it in conjunction with typical clinical information that would be collected at, at, at the um, early stages of the process. Yeah. So, you know, my hope would be that in time there's ways we can combine clinical uh, genetic information, almost like a sort of test score that mm-hmm. says, you know, this person is most likely to do well if you give them antidepressants. So go ahead and give them the prescription. Right. But then somebody else, they might get um you know, their score might indicate that alongside their clinical presentation, in fact, it's most likely they need to have some CBT or perhaps some combination of the two. Um, But we are quite a long way from being able Mm. to do that. But I think if we can um, move the science far enough forwards to be able to do that, then that would be a huge service to that community. That's what they want more than anything. When you speak to individuals Mm. with lived experience of anxiety and depression, what they want is the trial and error to be just got rid of it's it's so exhausting every time you engage in a new period of treatment whether it's a drug or a psychological treatment there's a cost to the person involved it might be side effects might be effort and time doesn't really matter what it is there's definitely a cost involved and if that doesn't work then that's effort from somebody who's struggling already that wasn't rewarded and so we just need to get rid of this trial and error and do a better job of providing the right treatment. You know, if if we had statistics in this country that meant that for every person that breaks their leg, we only mend it in 50 percent of cases. Yeah. Everybody would be shouting about it from the rooftops. Um, and actually having debilitating anxiety so you can't leave your home is, you know, it's just as problematic as having a broken leg. I mean, actually, in a cast, you can get out and about quite fine. So we just need to do a better job of knowing what the right treatment is, dependent on the specifics of the individual concerned. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. In my previous episode on gut microbiota, I brought up the same point about the trial and error process and whether we can predict what the right treatment is for people through our gut composition, because this really is a huge debilitating issue in the field. And when we think about issues like anxiety or depression, we know it's so broad because every person experiences depression and anxiety or anxiety in a different way, more or less, and due to different factors in their lives. And the same issue applies when looking at diagnosing mental disorders, which we currently don't have any genetic markers for, as you know. But when you flip it and look at it from the other perspective, as you said, looking at it in the form of genetics to try and understand whether one treatment works for this person and, you know, another treatment for the other, then this potentially can be a breakthrough in the field. Professor Thalia, I know we're short on time. So as a wrap up question and from everything that we've learned today, I do want to, I do wonder what does this mean for us? We mentioned about all the different types of gene environment interaction correlations. 
So essentially, are we a product of who we are? So does nature kind of win in this whole nature versus nurture debate? <laughs> they don't win. They team up and they join the finishing line hand <laughs> in hand. It's like a three-legged race. Um, I just think, you know, anxiety and depression are experiences that have existed as long as humans have. They're part of the human exactly. condition. And um, they are experiences that you can see have a fairly normal distribution in the population. Most people have kind of moderate levels of anxiety and depression, different, you know, in response to what's going on in their daily life. Some people stay at the very low end, and then an unfortunate minority stay at the higher end where it has a really big impact on their lives. And I think that will always be the case. And it will always be important that we uh, understand those individuals. It's actually fantastic, this changing recognition and awareness of the importance of understanding these conditions and their impact on people's daily lives um, and how young they begin and therefore the importance of understanding adolescent mental health. That's all such a huge shift since I began my career mm -hmm. 30 years ago and you had to really persuade people that childhood depression actually existed. Um, so I think, you know, we're progressing well, but in, in terms of your question about who will win, it's, um, mm -hmm. it's not a race. The race is for us to figure out how to improve improve lives of individuals with anxiety and depression. That's a great answer. Professor Thalia, thank you so much for your time and sharing such fascinating information with us. You are truly an inspiration. I do wish you the best of luck with your future research. And I encourage everyone who's interested in this topic to do more reading of Professor Thalia's work for further understanding, which I will share some of her works in the description box below. Thank you so much for joining us once again. My pleasure. Lovely to meet you. You as well. Thank you everyone for tuning in and listening. If you did like this episode, please do subscribe on your podcasting site and follow us on Instagram. That's at Behind the Stigma Podcast. Thank you so much once again, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>